It's just past 7 o'clock, and love this time of the week. Monday nights, it's time for Iron Sports True Oldies Channel. I'm Mike Balsamo, and another huge show on tap for you. Not even that much NFL. You know, usually the NFL manages a way to squeak its way into our news cycle basically daily, even when the league's not going on. But there's so much going on throughout sports, and uh, we're going to talk all about it tonight, myself and Ira. It's going to be a great show. And Ira, shocking, I don't know what I want to call it a shocking retirement, but a major retirement in NCAA basketball. We're going to co- talk to our good friend, uh, Coach Tran Dunphy, about that. About Coach K retiring as the all-time leading NCAA win, wins five titles. Uh, for the last, I guess, dozen years, people have been wondering, like, what was going to happen with Coach K, when he's going to retire, or who would, who would replace him. And uh, But uh, Coach Dumphy uh, worked with Coach K for many years back in the, in the 70s, and they're back at Army as one of his closest friends. So I'd love to have Coach Dumphy on just to give some sort of insight into his career. Yeah, and we'll, uh, we'll try to get with him uh, right around 725. But Ira, you, <laughs> you've done a real lot uh, these past couple of days. and you, you've, you've been, You're in New York right now. That's why you're on the phone. But uh, um, you, you two had a busy week. Well, it was just just one game. I went on Saturday night to the Nets uh, Bucks game, uh, but tonight I'm also going to go. We're taking the show a little early so I can get down to Barclays Center to see the next Bucks play game two, uh, starting at seven thirty. So it'll start at seven forty-five, sort of right when our show's going to be entering. But I'm going to be heading down for that, and then tomorrow I'm excited when we're in Philadelphia to see the the Sixers play Atlanta in their game two of their series. So it's it's, it's exciting. I like it. it's great that it worked out. Great that I could see the Nets and the Sixers both within just a short little train ride away. No, absolutely, and I can't wait to hear all about that next week. But first, let's talk about uh, Game 1 there. This is going to be a good series, and I'm a little bit surprised how it started so far, but let's talk about, uh, you know, you getting to the game. Well, sir, the the atmosphere is at about 15,000 fans at the game. Um, You had to, the best way we could figure it out was my friend and I, uh, uh, my friend John, we drove down, I got to thank him for the tickets, amazing seats just absolutely amazing seats 10th row uh which is really really a fourth row because they take behind the bench uh sort of like right at the foul line perfect tickets um but we had to get they had to he and his son had to get covid testing before so they went to the to the we get down there early you get to get a covid test they do it quickly then you go to a line where they check to see if you're vaccinated or not they looked at my card for about 0.001 seconds it could have been mickey mouse or donald duck and it would have gone through with the covid (laughs) test and then you Enter the stadium. The food was sort of you know, crazy, like the food normally normally is. I have to say one thing: the Amex station is Amex like place where you put your your card, your Amex card in, and they, then you can take whatever you want from the store, and then you walk out, and they know what it, you paid for. Which I can't believe it because I still I, it's just the craziest thing how they figured out what you take because you just walk out of the store with the things. But I was probably more impressed with that than than the fact that the Bucks can shoot three point shooters <laughs> and the, take three point shots. But one interesting thing about the game was. So we're sitting at the really early. I'm watching them, the, the Nets warm up. And James Harden and Kevin Durant, uh, uh, they, they, did, they, they didn't even warm up. They literally, and I know from going back to seeing them play, I know they get there early, they're practicing. But like the first like 15, 20 minutes of the game, the practice where they're warm up, they're just sitting on the little chairs. Now, those chairs are meant for like five foot eight, not for seven foot players, six foot seven, or six six. And they're sitting there and it's uncomfortable. And, it, and I pointed out because then one minute in the game, Harden pulls his hamstring. So the point is, I just it was surprising that the, you know, almost the entire world they were just sitting on the bench and not warming up with the rest of the teammates didn't get hurt. But you know it's great to be in the in the in the Nets place. It's not like the Knicks, no history, none of that. But Jay Z and Beyonce they make their appearance in the first quarter and walk in like right when the action's on they walked in during the game. So everybody knows it's Jay Z, Beyonce, uh, Michael Strahan was there, Trevor Noah was there. Uh, it was it was it was not like super like a million celebrities. But it was pretty cool to be there uh, for that. Um, but the key thing was just. You know, just being at that, it was like, you know, first playoff game, post-pandemic, pretty exciting to be there. So, I, you know, we have to go back to the important part here. Um, Harden's out, and he's not going to play um, now in game two. Do you think that they're worried in Brooklyn not having James Harden, or you think that it's just they've got enough firepower that, that, they're, that they can just roll Milwaukee anyway? Well, they, the right hamstring, well, first of all, I saw the Bucks tonight are favored by a point, which is interesting considering that they, they sort of almost got killed. I know this, the first game was 115-107, but by the, it was really the scrubs time there at the end of the game where, uh, they, uh, you know, they scored a lot of the, the, the Nets scored, Nets blew. 
I think they were more like 14, 15 points. So the game was not, it was, was not, was, did not feel like a 115, 107 game. But Harden has missed 18 straight games, 20 out of 21 late in the season. He came back, missed some games, came back for that one game. Uh, he, to, for, look, I don't think he's going to say he'll be, he'll be playing game three. I would expect Harden to be in and out, probably not play this whole series. Uh, but what happened in this game was it's just the Bucks couldn't shoot. I mean, they got out to a 20 to 11 lead. And then when you watch Kevin Durant in person, you just see the greatness. He can just score whatever he wants. And they literally just ran it through him. They threw it to him on the side, and he just ran the offense. And he can score whatever he wants, ask whatever he wants. He's so tall, such a great dribbler, such, has every move to the basket. It really is just unguardable. And they bring Mike James in the game. Mike James is a fourth-year player. No one's ever heard of him. only played 18 games this year. I mean, he ended up scoring 15 points in the game. Blake Griffin hadn't played more than a few minutes. Like some good games, some bad games. He ended up playing 35 minutes, draining threes. I think he had, he had 18 points scoring. Just a just a, a great game from Blake Griffin coming out of nowhere and having this uh, 18 points, uh, just tremendous. And and that's the one thing. Durant played 40 minutes. Kyrie Irving played 45 minutes. Blake Griffin played 35 minutes. And Joe Harris who probably is one of the easiest jobs in basketball. I mean, he shoots these threes. It's, it's like wide open when you throw it to Kyrie and Durant and everyone else. And then when Harder was in the game, I mean, Joe Harris is he's the best. He leads the league in three-point shooting percentages. No, no doubt why, because he's wide open all the time. But uh, they, they ended up shooting 15 to 40 from threes. And, and, and the key, though, was, that, was Milwaukee was just terrible. I mean, six for, 30, uh, uh, six for 30 from threes. And this is a team, this is the Bucks that I saw against the Heat they just, you know, could score at will. They just could not do anything, uh, just couldn't shoot. It wasn't Giannis's fault. Giannis, Giannis played well. I mean, he didn't force the ball. He had scored 34 points, 16 for 24 shooting. But Middleton, 6 for 23, 0 for 5 from threes. Uh, one of just one of those things where it was just, they, they just, I just not like how Bucks played. I'm waiting for that run. They didn't dominate. They, they led by 11 on the boards. But it really didn't mean much because they just couldn't shoot from threes at all. And even though they cut it to two, they got lucky. At the end of the first half, they was, the lead was like eight. And Durant inbounded the ball on the back of the backboard, which I did when I was like in third grade <laughs> when it just hit the backboard. And then they made another mistake. And then what's weird is that Lopez got fouled in the act of shooting. And because he released the ball after the time, before, because he was fouled before the clock expired, that counted for three. So they got lucky. They, they ended up getting like those six points at the end. So it was, it was even going into the third. But in the third period, they just they played terrible. I just, the whole game, I'm like, wait for the Bucks to start shooting. Where's all these threes that were, they were, you know, they were shooting 50% against the, the Heat, and they shot six for 30 against the, the Nets. You're listening to Iron Sports True Oldies Channel. I'm Mike Balsamo. So it, it was it was a fun story for a while there, Ira. But uh, Atlanta did close out the Knicks. It wasn't really close. Um, you have to be excited if you're a Knicks fan, right? I mean, this is the best the team's looked in 20 years. But do you think they have to look inside and say Julius Randle's not a number one? Julius Randle's not a number one. But I think he could be a two or three. And the good thing, what I, and someone made a good point, is that he can be offered an extension of a four-year, $25 million a year. Well, that's a lot of money. It's not a max money. It's not 35 to 40 if he takes it now. And I think that's great for the Knicks and great for Julius yeah, Randle. No, Sign him four years, 25. They have tons of cash space left. Bring in some other uh, uh, free agents with him and try to work it through. But uh, Randle is part of the piece. He's not the only. He's he's not going to be the the lead piece to it. And he had a terrible playoff series. He, he averaged like seventeen, eighteen points. Atlanta was just. I mean, you saw Derek Rose just got tired in Game Five. Uh, I think Knicks fans are excited. They got the fourth seed, but still, they just need a lot. And and but they wasted. They had so many drafts where they had some you know potentially great picks. Now the thing, they drafted third with R.J. Barrett. They could have had John Morant and Zion Williamson one too. It's not their fault. They probably picked the best player at three, but if they had John Morant, that would have made a big difference. But it's, it's, it's like one of those things where I think the Knicks have made great strides. They know they have a good coach and they have one of the building blocks, but they are still far away from, uh, from winning the Easter or making the NBA Finals. I agree with you on everything you said there, but yeah, it is a, a little bit like there might be some light at the end of the tunnel. Philly, we had high hopes for Washington on this, but I, I don't think anyone really took them seriously. Philly closed out the Wizards, so now we're going to see the Hawks play the Sixers. And Ira, I've never really in my life been the one to root for a team that just knocked me out, but I think I have to root for the Atlanta Hawks over Philly here, and it was a pretty good game one. Well, that, you know, the Hawks went up 74-54. to 54. Uh, Trey Young, 35 points. 
He's now, how about this, in the first four road playoff games, only Trey Young and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar have scored 30 points or more, which is just amazing. And the only thing crazy about this game was the Hawks were dominating. They were up, eight by, four, eight, they were up by 14 points with three minutes to go in the game, and they almost blew the lead, which is almost hardly the thing. They were, it was 118-104, and, and at the end of the game, Hawks turned the ball over like three times, made mistakes, didn't get offensive rebounds. At one point, uh, the Sixers uh, missed the free throw, got the rebound, scored again, then got fouled, missed another free throw. It was crazy. Um, short of that, they played the, the Atlanta played a perfect game, shooting threes, draining threes, uh, and, uh, but it was just – and Ben Simmons. So – Embiid played. He was hurt, but actually played the game. And Embiid had, a, had an amazing game. But Ben Simmons is terrible. He was 3 for 10 from the foul line. It's surprising. Embiid was 14 for 15 from the foul line. The center, who's supposed to miss fouls on. And then <laughs> Ben Simmons is their point guard. 3 for 10 on the line. Of course, he can't shoot threes. 17 points, 10 assists. When you just watch it, and Tobias Harris was just okay as Tobias Harris. Uh, I really think Atlanta's going to win the series. I think they just they're just... They, if they could, it's not, you know, learn that they can forget turning the ball over at the end of the game, but it just seems like you saw it against the Knicks. They shoot threes well. They play a lot, a lot like Utah does, but they don't have Gobert. Capella, Capella is not, Cliff Capella is not that center that Gobert is, but they just, they drain a lot of threes. They have a, a guard like Mitchell who can shoot really well from threes, but also drive. They open the, spread the court out. Um, I think Sixers are going to have a, a world, a, very much, you know, a lot of trouble trying to uh, trying to win in the series. So, Ira, if um, if the Hawks do win this series, you think they have to blow up the the uh, Embiid Simmons combo? I don't think they have to blow it up, but let's just that's what's so exciting about this. We're not there yet, and you saw with Portland. The point is, is that that's you hear all this talk. I, I would say that if they lose this series, yes, I think something would have to be done because now Embiid is healthy. You know, as long as Embiid stays healthy, is Embiid and Simmons and Harris. If they can't get through the second round, yes, they're going to have to. That's why there's a lot of pressure. Philadelphia's the number one seed. You're, you're the number one seed. You won the most games in the East. You're playing Atlanta. You've got to win this series. This is a must-win for them. I agree with you. That's why the pressure is on this. I think that if they don't win this, you're going to see. I don't think you see MB get traded, but I would think you would get Simmons, T. Simmons get traded. So the Clippers, <laughs> they got stretched pretty thin here, man. Uh, they had to win two games to close it out and advance. They did pull it up, uh, pull up the upset over the Mavs, who are just not on paper nearly as good of a team as them. Yeah, you know what? So what's so what's amazing? That was the series. It was two two. First time in the history of the NBA that the road teams have won six six games. Um, the last year, the Mavs lost the Clippers in six, and it was the Kawhi Leonard Luka Doncic uh, uh, battle. And, and and the Mavs won. It was two two going into this week. Mavs win one hundred five, one hundred, one hundred. Luka scored for the Mavs forty two points. Kawhi had a bad game, only scored twenty. So this was it. I mean, so this was in L.A. So the Dallas comes to Game Six at home with a chance of finally, can you win this? And they lose 104 to 97. Leonard, quite Leonard, who last year did not play well against Denver, ended up playing great. 45 points, 18 for 25 shooting. Uh, Clippers uh, were down in the fourth, down in the fourth actually, and came back and, won- and, and ended up winning that game. So that set up the only game seven we had in the first round games. And the Clippers went on to win 126-111 last night. Uh, Dallas was up at the end of the first. Uh, they, you know, they, they took a lead in the third. They were up 19. They took a 19-6 run. But really what happened was a 24-4 spurt uh, on behalf of, of the uh, uh, Clippers. Kawhi Leonard, just unstoppable. Terrence Mann, who we've had on our show before the Clippers game in the game, played great. Um, Luka finished with 46 points, 14 assists, 7 rebounds, and still loses the game. The Clippers just shot well, 50% from the field, almost 50% from the three-point line, and they had, were 24 for 24 for the foul line. Uh, just and it's like one of those things for the Mavericks. You're talking about what they need. I mean, Luca is so good, but Persingis is not. Is just Christoph Persingis did not play well as the second star of the team. They actually went bigger and brought Bowen behind in the game. So at one point, the Mavericks had uh, two seven foot four players in the game. Plus Luca, who's six seven, it was very one of the tallest teams of all time. But it was it's just the Mavericks have not won a series since 2011, and it's just something that you have a star like Luca, you've got it. There's got to, they have to figure out some way to bring in other pieces because now this is two years in a row they've lost to the Clippers in the first round. Utah is going to face uh, the Clippers here uh, starting tomorrow. I'm not going to be surprised at all if Utah wins this series, I. 
Oh, they're the number one seed. Uh, they The only game they lost was when Donovan Mitchell was out with an injury. They came back and just destroyed Memphis in two games. John Morant, the only thing about it is Memphis, John Morant's tremendous. 30 points, 8 assists, uh, 49, and he shot well. I said John Morant can't shoot. He shot 49% shooting, 33% from threes. But Utah, is, is they have so many three-point shooters. They have, and then you have Gobert, Rudy Gobert in the center, as a center, and he is just patrols that center position so that not only do they shoot well at threes, they're the best three-point shooting teams in the league, they're also the best three-point shooting defenders in the league. Uh, I, Utah looks like, to me, the team that's going to win the West and, 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 and potentially could win the title. Let's see if I have the Nets. But the point is, they look great. That was, that Memphis is a very good team, and they played very, very hard. I was just, and, and, and had great wins against Golden State. Uh, but uh, it was in terms of that one game win to get into it. But uh, once Donovan Mitchell came back and started scoring his, his typical 30 points a game, I think Memphis, I mean, Utah just looks uh, unstoppable. And I, this series is going to be great because this is for the Clippers. You talk about a team, the Clippers have, this is where it's a must win. Utah has them one seed again. They should win this. The Clippers with Kawhi Leonard and Paul George, they're free agents at the end of next year. They have to win. This is uh, actually Kawhi Leonard's a free agent after this year. But uh, um, so this is going to be a very interesting series and one that is, I, I mean, Utah's favorite to win. But uh, I really think that the key is for the Clippers is, is can Paul George step up and be that second option and, and not have these terrible games like he did last year against Denver when he was like you know, three for uh, 17 and those bad scoring games. Kawhi Leonard's going to get his numbers and he should. But it, the, Paul George is the key in this series. So, you know, it is going to be the, the the series everyone's talking about in the West, obviously. But I think the Denver-Phoenix series is really interesting as well, Ira. I'm looking forward to this one. Well, I think what, what happened is with Phoenix, I mean, they're, the Lakers were the ones everyone thought, they're, you know, Lakers are the best. They were the seventh seed. Don't worry. You know, once they get to the playoffs, they're going to win. But once Anthony Davis got hurt, uh, they were up 2-1. They lose that game 2-2. Then on Tuesday night, the Suns win by 30. Uh, Devin Booker, who is... One of the top four scorers in the league ended up finally was you know not playing well the first couple of games scored thirty points in uh, in the game four and, and, and then and, and then in game five and then in game six he ended up scoring uh, uh, forty five points forty seven points fifteen for twenty two shooting uh, LeBron just couldn't do everything can LeBron do it for himself but is in the game in the game that they lost at home by thirty Schroeder was zero for nine. Uh, they just had, didn't really get any other help at all. And then on Thursday night, it was like, again, the Suns were up by 22. The Suns' ability to just jump on the Lakers fast and get these huge leads uh, really put, made the Lakers play behind the entire time, and it was difficult. I mean, LeBron had 29 points, 9 rebounds, 7 assists, but I, even if in both those games, if LeBron had scored 45 points, 10 rebounds, 10 assists, it, I think it, would, it felt like Luka. It felt like LeBron would have to do everything there, and a lot of the moves the Lakers made that everyone thought was great, bringing Andre Drummond in, you know, play on Thursday night. Uh, ben McLemore was shooting well for him, didn't play. Uh, Caruso, who we saw last year in the playoffs against the Heat, played eight minutes. It just seems like the, the Lakers were just, they, they were just trying to find themselves without Anthony Davis. They really just didn't know what to do, and the Suns took advantage of it. And, Suns, and, and I have to say this, I do think the Lakers look past the Suns a little bit. They were like, I know, Lakers said, I know they're the two seed, but we're the Lakers, and they're the Suns, and they lose all the time, and all this, and I think they got, and that's why they started these games so poorly. Each game, they were you know, down by 20-some points in the first quarter. No, I, I agree with you. I think it was overlooked, Ira. And I think not only the Lakers, but also the media overlooked it. Like, they weren't even giving them a shot, even when they're leading in the series, which is crazy. And it's probably because, I mean, David had the first overall pick two years ago, I think it was. So it's a huge turnaround. I get why. But still, I mean, if you're LeBron, you got to be really upset with how this panned out. And you have to look at yourself and the team you built a little bit on this. Well, yeah, it's his team and, and Frank Vogel, the coach, and and everyone everyone gives kudos to the to the Lakers. And then you're starting to think like, what happened last year? Well, they got three months off. They went to a bubble. They stayed healthy. Didn't have to play. Uh, Anthony Davis was able to stay healthy. I mean, he got injured during the you saw during the Heat series and during the playoffs, but was able to get play a bit. Now he tried to play that in, uh, in 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 the game six, but it did it didn't work. But it was it's one of those things where. I felt like you know losing at home in a game six was was just horrendous for the Lakers and. I, the Lakers have got to figure out, I mean, they're going to be desperate. They're going to try to figure out pieces because can they depend on Anthony Davis and staying healthy? I, I talk about this all the time. These players are getting hurt, and there's certain players like Anthony Davis where you can count on, like Embiid, Davis, these players are going to continually get hurt. And you're going to have to figure out ways to win when your star players get hurt. And some of these teams, like the Nets, 
they can lose Harden, but they also have Durant and Kyrie, so they're able to go through it. But I did like the Denver Portland series. I mean, I love Portland. I thought this was this was one of those series that I thought Portland was going to do it because Denver did not have Jamal Murray, the star guard, but Denver won one hundred four. Game of the whole playoffs was uh, Denver won in Game Five, one forty-seven, one forty at home, and uh, Lillard had fifty-five points twice at the end of regular regular uh, the regular session and overtime with hardly any time left. Lillard hits a three to send the game first of all into overtime, and then in the second overtime where they finally lost. But Jokic was unstoppable, and then he ended up. And then in the in the game six, Denver won by eleven. Denver was down; uh, they were down like fourteen points in the third, and came out and ended up winning the game uh, fairly easily, just on this on a huge run. Uh, Lillard just—it seemed like Portland just got tired at the end and couldn't stand it and stay in the game. But I mean, I like in this series. I certainly like. Uh, um, I, I certainly like the Suns to beat Denver. I just, Jokic is amazing though. He is, it's weird. We've never seen a player with just such passing ability, uh, just shooting ability. He's slow, but he just knows the game. It's sort of like Bill Walton alike, but just a much better shooter because he drains three point shots. Just a fun player to watch and, and so different than, than what you normally see in the NBA. And that's why he's going to win the MVP and probably good enough though. Uh, you know, one of those things where the Suns are, might have trouble with Aiton matching up with him. So if Jokic has these, monster games where he's getting 10, 12 assists, they, they could beat the Suns. It's Iron Sports True Oldies channel. Let's go to our good friend, Coach Fran Dunphy. Coach Dunphy, thanks a lot for being on Iron Sports. I appreciate it. Uh, I brought you on because you have a, a, actually a connection uh, to Coach Mike Kazeski of Duke, Coach K, uh, back at Army. Tell us a little about the, your connection with Coach K. Well, I, he and I were teammates for the United States Army team uh, in 1971-72. Yes, 71 mostly it it took place. It was, I was in the service. Uh, Mike had been in for a little bit of time. Uh, He was obviously an officer. And then I was an enlisted man and we, uh, I was stationed at Fort Ord, California, and getting prepared to either go to Germany or Vietnam, actually. And uh, I got a call from the all-Army basketball coach by the guy by the name of Hal Fisher. Uh, And he said, do you want to try out for the all-Army team? I said, yeah, I'd love to. And uh, so I took a bus up the next day to Presidio of San Francisco, and as I got off the bus, the first person I met was Mike and uh, we became friends and teammates at that point. Uh, I, I made the team. Mike was already on the team. Uh, and then we traveled around the United States to different bases uh, and played. And then we made a just an ama- amazing trip uh, later on to play on the all-world all Army teams against the all-world teams. And, uh, so it was just a, an amazing experience. We flew into Frankfurt, Germany. We went down to Athens, Greece, and played in the old Olympic Stadium down there. And then uh, we went to Beirut, Lebanon, uh, and then we finished uh, the, our tour by playing uh, in Damascus, Syria, against all the other armies of the world. So that was my first meeting of Mike Shashevsky. Was impressed then, and have been just wowed by his success uh, as he has now decided to stop coaching after this year and couldn't be more proud of him. What was he like as a player? Like we know how he has as a coach, but, but you had this, you played all around the world with him as a player. What, what was he like uh, playing with him? Well, he was, you could just tell he was going to be a phenomenal coach uh, as we were playing together. Oftentimes, if I would come off the off the court and onto the bench, I'd you, you would sit beside him, and he might give you a couple of different ideas and suggestions. And you're you're saying to yourself, "Well, why didn't I think of that?" And he he just was a step ahead, and obviously, he stayed a step ahead of just about everybody in our business because of how well he coached. And I just think he's the consummate leader and always was. He was a, a great leader even in those days. And uh, I'm sure it was in him. And I'm sure that West Point had a lot to do with bringing out that leadership quality within him. 
And what about that experience of just playing around the world, playing Americans all around, but you played against against foreign teams also. Uh, that just much that just experience must have been helpful for your coaching and also his coaching. Yeah, no question about it. And our our coach Al Fisher, after we stopped playing, uh, actually went to the New York Knicks and and was an assistant with. Uh, uh, I'm trying to think uh, of. What's the fellow's name who was the next coach when Willis Red Reed and Red Holtzman. Red Holtzman. I don't know why I forgot that, but Hal Fisher was Red Holtzman's coach, assistant coach for the, I think they won it in 73, did they not? The Knicks. Mm-hmm. I think, and Hal, Hal Fisher was on that staff. So we were just fortunate to, to be uh, in, in that environment. We had really great players and, uh, and we were, we didn't lose too much. I can remember that. So, uh, because of the quality of the players and, and uh, how Fisher got us all to play very, very well together. And uh, I think Mike learned a lot from that. I certainly did as well, but just being around great people was the, was the optimum opportunity. And coaches, coach K's connection to Duke in terms of coming, I mean, I'm sure when you were with him, he wasn't saying my goal is to coach Duke, and you know Duke was already a very good program already. But but in terms of your knowledge about the whole idea of his deciding to choose Duke and go to Duke, and I know his first couple of years weren't as, weren't the, the super success that we now know of him, but but just the whole idea of Coach K going to Duke and, and what that was about. Yeah, well, first of all, I think what happened to him in his first couple of years was not uh, unlike a lot of very successful coaches uh, spending a few years just putting in their, their philosophies and, and establishing their cultures. Same thing happened to Dean Smith. Same thing happened to countless others. What you needed was uh, a AD or administration that would say, we're going to, we're going to have great patience. And he, Mike, whenever he talks, always speaks so highly of Tom Butters, his AD at Duke and, and thanking him for staying with him in those early days. And he was the one that supported him so much. The ironic part to, to all of this, by the way, is that when I met Mike in 1971, uh, th- that year, you know, he was playing obviously army basketball as was I, but my high school basketball coach, a uh, fellow by the name of Dan Doherty succeeded uh, Bobby Knight at West Point when Knight went to Indiana. So when I got finished playing uh, overseas and, and then having another job in in the service, I got a chance to coach with Mike or with Dan Doherty at West Point uh, in 1971-72 season was Dan Doherty's first year at West Point. And then Dan stayed for a number of years, three or four years, and then Mike took over for Dan Doherty. So just the, the irony of, of uh, that, all that coming together, and uh, again, Mike just uh, running with uh, running with his career after he he did struggle a little bit, but but everybody could just tell, especially Tom Butters could tell. We've got a we've got a gem here. We just need to to give him a little bit of time to to grow into the position that he obviously did. Yeah. I mean, that's great. I mean, and it's certainly what, where do you think he goes from? I mean, he certainly has so much more to give to basketball. I mean, I know you retired and then you're back at being an athletic director, but what, what in terms of where do you think coach K does in terms of uh, these next years, in terms of being the ambassador to basketball and, and to be a mentor to coaches throughout the country? Yeah, I think he he's the kind of person that will be available to a lot of people to pick his brain and to he'll, he'll be out on the speaking circuit. I'm sure he does so much with the V Foundation as well, uh, and you know he's going to represent Duke in so many different ways. Uh, it, it, he'll he'll just he'll he'll be somebody that they can all count on, and he'll enjoy it. He'll do a phenomenal job at it, and he's he's doing a phenomenal job of being a grandfather and I'm sure he loves that, that, uh, opportunity. So he's just, he's got a great family. Uh, he, and when you listen to him speak, he oftentimes talks about his mom and his dad and, and how much of a influence they were on, on him uh, as he was becoming a young man. And, uh, 
just it's heartwarming to watch and uh, I'm happy for the relationship that we have I you know it's not like we talk all the time but if we text message on somebody's success or uh, difficulties or whatever he's right away responding to it so it's uh it's a terrific relationship and i'm happy to have him as a friend in my life oh that's so nice i i remember when you were hired at the university of pennsylvania and the athletic director said that the the main reason besides your skills and everything was that was the recommendation from coach k and the letter he wrote on your behalf so uh again i know your your bond is deep and and for your friendship is great so i i really appreciate you coach for for coming on Iron Sports. I really appreciate you giving us this insight that I don't think anyone else has on Coach K. I'm, I'm sure there are plenty others, Ira, but I'm happy to talk about Mike at any time. And He's a great man and he's been a great friend, and uh, I'm just so happy for all of his success. And then, well, we got one more year of watching him on the sidelines at Duke, too, and nobody will be surprised if they're in the Final Four next year again. You're listening to Iron Sports, True Oldies Channel. I'm Mike Balsamo. Let's talk a little hockey, Ira, because it's getting, it's starting to heat up. And <laughs> every time we talk about hockey, I kind of throw the Islanders under the bus, and I just give them no credit at all for what they've managed to accomplish as a team the past couple of years. And here they are, battled back. They're tied with Boston. And Matthew Barzell is as good a player, really, as there is in the league. And he's another guy who just doesn't get the credit because he plays for the Islanders. Nobody cares about them, Ira. But this is a good series. Yeah, it's a good series in the fact that, look, Saturday night you had the Belmont and the Belmont. You had the Islanders playing the Nassau Coliseum. The Yankees were playing and the Nets were playing. I mean, that was, I could only go to one game. I picked the Nets. But it was one. Of, but it was funny. After the game, you're coming back and you see people wearing Yankee jerseys, Islander jerseys in the city. It was like it was it was the the center of the sports universe was in New York. But I do think there is this point. Being in New York is getting the sense of this. The the last year of the Coliseum because they build they're building a new arena that's going to be in Elmont, New York. And the idea that this could be like the last time they play with all the histories. Remember the Islanders years and years ago won four straight Stanley Cups. Were by far one of the greatest uh, franchises. You know what are the greatest runs in the history of, of all team sports and so you have that history and I think it's that they're sort of I know none of these players were probably were even alive when that happened but I think they sense it from the fans sense it from the building and I think you're you're feeling that from this team well they call it the barn and it really is like a it's loud it's raucous those fans are intense and you're right I mean the generation above me all Islander fans because they grew up watching from 80 to 83 watching these guys win four in a row so everyone like five ten years older than me diehard Islanders fans and it shows uh, when you go to the game and they're going to close down the barn Montreal and Winnipeg I read didn't see this one coming would have picked Winnipeg all day but we talk about it on the show a hot goalie is is paramount to pretty much anything in sports besides a quarterback and that's what the um, uh, the Canadians have right now with Carey Price didn't see this one coming as a matter of fact I picked Carolina to uh, to come out of the eastern side of the bracket Tampa Bay up 3-1 to one, and Ira we're seeing same thing that happened with the Panthers they're just so talented on that Tampa Bay side you can't slow them down well, I think the one thing you're seeing in the power play, their ability, uh, it's just this stick handling. Tampa just looks like they know how to play. It's, it's like they are, they're just magicians. And they have so many lines. It's not just the one line. The different lines that they have and how many players are able to you know, get scoring opportunities, pass the ball, pass the puck, and then also on the power play. And that's one thing. I just, it's, it's amazing. Every time Carolina gets the lead, Tampa seems like they're able to score two goals in like two minutes and, and take come back. And that's what... The, what's exciting about the series and uh tampa's just they're just good i mean that's they're just good that's the one thing i know you love carolina and i you know, when you watch all these games playing and i'm getting a little i agree with you this these two tampa carolina could be the two best teams in the playoffs and unfortunately they're playing in the quarterfinals and not the final well the team that i think is the most set to beat tampa bay is going to be the colorado avalanche they had a two to nothing lead in this series let vegas come back and win two in a row this one's going seven, and I know it's, you know, not a lot of people want to stay up and watch these teams, and we don't talk about Western Conference teams that often here on the Eastern Seaboard, but if you've got some time, take in some of this Avalanche uh, night series because it's been intense. Mike, I was watching the whole game in Game five, in game 4, Colorado, or Game 3, actually. Colorado, you know, Colorado was up 2-0, 2-1, five minutes to go in the game, and, and they're ready to go 3-0, and Vegas scores two goals in five minutes. They scored the entire game, anything. They scored two goals, take the lead, win the game, and then 
make it two one, and then they win yesterday to make it tie at two two. It's just it was if you're if you're Colorado, you're like we were five minutes away from being up three zero and this not even being a series, and that's it must be frustrating because it was really they were just cruising along and and Vegas was getting no scoring opportunities. Uh, just it was one of those swings where I said it, it, like Colorado had been leading. Now it seemed like it was almost they should easily put up three zero, and now it's a two two series. It's Iron Sports True Oldies Channel. I'm Mike Balsamo. So Ira. Big moves, big moves that I wasn't expecting, but it's one of those moments when your phone goes absolutely crazy and you look at it and everyone's saying, Julio Jones traded to the Titans. Well, uh, Julio Jones uh, was traded to the Titans for a second-round pick and a fourth-round pick. Uh, what you have to know about Julio Jones is he's going to be going to be a Hall of Fame uh, wide receiver. He has... In the between 2014 2019, he averaged almost 100 catches a season with 1,400 receiving yards. Uh, it, it, he's 32 years old, so for that wide receivers, that's old and uh, getting old at that period of time. But last year, he had nine games, 51 catches, 771 yards, and was hurt. And he has a cap hit. It's, it's, Atlanta is in a very bad cap situation in terms of the salary cap going down. So they, they sort of needed to make this trade in order to free up money. And so his base cap salary was like $15 million. He's owed another 23 next year. So it was like one of those trades that they felt. But it really helps the Titans because they lost – Corey Davis uh, and jo- to the Jets and Jonas Smith, their tight end. And now, but they put Julio Jones with their superstar wide receiver, A.J. Brown, with Tannehill, with Henry at running back. That's going to be a – maybe the Titans are going to have a strong offense here. But he's as someone – he's averaged 95.5 receiving yards per game, which is the best per game average in NFL history. It's 10 full yards better than first ballot Hall of Famer Calvin Johnson for the Lions. So it's like one of those trades where – I, you felt like the, I thought it was crazy for the Falcons to do it, but when you just keep seeing about the salary cap situation, it was the easiest way for them to get under their tax. And one of the things is because the salary cap went down. It was the first time in our lifetime that the salary cap actually went down, and that's why these teams are cutting salary left and right. And you know what, Ira? I was one of the first people to mock the Falcons for taking Kyle Pitts. It's like, you know, this team, offense was not your issue here. You guys score a lot of points. You can't stop anybody. But now that Julio's gone, you're not leaving Calvin Ridley out on an island. You're going to have have some support for him. It works well with Ridley and Pitts and Matt Ryan and see what happens. I mean, I think one of the things I'd be nervous about is I never viewed Julio Jones as a great blocking wide receiver, and I know A.G. Brown is. And I think it, it certainly in Tennessee they, re, they require their uh, wide receivers to block a lot for Eric, Derek Henry to run because he rushes one of the best running backs in the league. So at that point, I think that's one of the question marks in terms of is he going to be able to block as well. But Look, they're looking to pass the ball at Tannehill. I, I, you saw his tweets. He could be more excited to have, have Julio on his team. But uh, it was, and it was one of those pictures like, well, that they only they didn't get a first round pick. But look, a lot of these teams couldn't take a salary, and so I think getting a second and fourth round was clearly it's the best they could have done, uh, you know, for the trade. You're listening to Iron Sports True Oldies Channel. I'm Mike Balsamo. Let's go to baseball. Uh, I don't know if you saw the the final of the Red Sox in uh, wasn't the final, but ninth inning yesterday. Yankees got an absolutely egregious call against them. Uh, Ruggio Dor got called out on a ball that was outside by about four yards, and they had a guy on third at the time. And then uh, Boston went on to win in uh, extra innings. But regardless, this is not looking good for the Yankees in the AL East. No, and it was like going into two weeks ago. The Yankees finished off. Uh, they swept the White Sox. They'd won six in a row and looked ready like they're set. And then I said, though, but coming in, let's see what happens. And they, then they get swept by the Tigers. And then after Sunday night's loss to the Red Sox last night, they've now lost 10 of 13 games, and they haven't won any of their series, and, and they just get swept by the Red Sox, and they lose to Tampa. So this has been a disaster. Now they're 14-22 and 22 against those teams, and 2-5 uh, and, and against the Red Sox and Rays. Uh, but this is this is one of those things where now the Yankees are six and a half games back. Toronto is six games back. So Toronto is now past the Yankees. The Yankees are only two games over five hundred. This was crucial. They were they they had at home Tampa and Boston. They could have put themselves right in the mix of the East, and now they're going to be fighting back the next month or so, trying to catch up. But it didn't. A lot of the problems that the Yankees have had, it seems like oh now they're going to get their hitting. You know, in this these series, that their bullpen actually gave uh, a lot. Chad Green gave up four runs one game. So it's. Uh, it's getting a little dicey there for the Yankees. No, and usually, you know, the situation with this team is usually 
they're, you know, regardless of what their record is, they're plus 20 or 30 runs because they hit the ball so well. And that just hasn't been the case. They're, they're a negative differential right now. They're minus four. So I know that throughout the Yankees, um, you know, fan base, they're calling for, for Boone to be fired. They're calling for Cashman to be fired. They're ready to wrap it up. And I don't know if this team's going to wrap it up, Ira, but I'd be worried, especially with Tampa Bay, who just doesn't seem to lose ever. Um, go to the AL. Boone and Cashman should have been fired. Five years ago, you hate I just, that. I, I don't, I can't believe they're still running this. They, I mean, I'm just so. I, to me, whatever this is, they're they're on borrowed time as it is. So I, you know, we've been talking up until you know ten days ago how. The wild cards are probably going to come out of the AL East, but now you look at it, and going to the AL Central, Cleveland is actually would get the other wild card right now. They're only four games back on Chicago. Just opened everything up, exactly. And that's what the White Sox are for and had the Indians, but, but the Yankees falling back has now opened it. Boston will get the one wild card, and now it's everybody. Now it's open. So it was like everyone's happy that the Yankees fell apart. Uh, the only interesting thing this week for the White Sox is Tony La Russa now has the second most wins in the history of baseball. 2,764 passing John McGraw, and he's behind Connie Mack. He's still a 1,000 games behind Connie Mack. It's just amazing to, to see, but I mean, Lusa comes back, and for all the criticism of LaRusso and all the old school and he's not, he, they're winning. I mean, he's whatever buttons he's pushing, it's working. And maybe his players don't like him, but, uh, but his players were excited when he got the wins. Like, we didn't even know that, but that's so cool. They were also the right things. But the White Sox are, they're, are playing great uh, between Abreu and Mikado. They're getting pitched. Lance Lynn and Keiko are pitching well. It seems like everything's coming together for the White Sox this year. They have the best differential in all of baseball, a plus 85. Better than the Rays, better than the Dodgers. And yeah, it, it, that's helped with the pitching. And I don't know if that's Florusa to blame, but Carlos Rodon, who we've been waiting to break out for you know five years now, he's having a, a Cy Young caliber season. Chicago's not going to go down easy in the American League, that's for sure. Uh, go Going to the West, two teams that, that look like serious competitors, too, and it's Oakland and Houston. They're going to have to battle it out. Yeah, I mean, that's what the, definitely Oakland and Houston in terms of – I'm surprised Houston with everything that's gone through, all the issues. That your credit. I mean, look at these managers. You have LaRusso and Dusty Baker. Two 70-year-old-plus managers are keeping their teams in there, and it just – it's so – it's it, and there's – you know, their players are in their early 20s and uh, both doing. Baker's doing a great job this year. It shows them a smart move to bring him in as a manager because everything could have fallen apart with the Astros and they're playing great. Uh, let's go to the NL. People were ready to bury the Mets and rightfully so. Francisco Lindor looked awful through the, through the beginning of this season. He's starting to get it together. They still are in. I mean, a lot of teams are injured, but the Mets have injuries left and right. But a three and a half game lead in the East. Three and a half game lease. And DeGrom, I saw him the other night, uh, 11, in terms on TV, of course, 11, uh, they're playing in San Diego, but he had 11 strike on seven innings. Now, his nine starts in the season, he's given up no more than one run, just four runs, 58 starts. His .62 ERA is the lowest through nine starts in Major League Baseball history. They're comparing him to Bob Gibson in 68 and Pedro Martinez in 2000, who had like 1.34 ERAs and 1.19. Now, the big difference is that Gibson, at this point, had pitched 80 innings, DeGrom only 58. So until I'm not going to say DeGrom is the greatest year of baseball history when he's pitched, maybe he's going to end up pitching half the innings that Gibson pitched. But uh, the only thing about that game is they take DeGrom out, they have the lead, everything's going great. And then Lindor makes the easiest air. And he's like one of these things where they pay him $340 million and he's not hitting. And when you make an air like that in the field, that is scary to think that the Mets have, uh, have uh, put so much, invested so much money into a player that, but it's like the easiest, like a double play air that he just made and anytime the the Mets anytime DeGrom starts they have to win this game they can't do anything stupid to blow it because he's the best pitcher in baseball I mean he's probably going to win the MVP and the Cy Young this year and and he probably should here's a good stat like you said he's got a .62 ERA the second ERA in baseball Lance Lynn is more than double that more than double (laughs) it's just ridiculous um going to the nl central this this division likes to beat up on each other and it's really tight milwaukee chicago and st louis all within two and a half games of each other going to the west though this is where it's really exciting because it does look like we are going to see all three teams come out of one division uh for going to the playoffs with two wild cards between the giants padres and dodgers 
Well, people are waiting for the Giants to say, are they for real? Because no one gave them any credit coming this season. Now they're 37 and 22. At like what point are we going to be halfway through the season and like waiting for the Giants to fall apart? And they're just <laughs> waiting for the Dodgers to run away with it. And they lose to the Braves. They lost Kershaw and Bauer. Both had losses. It's just one of those weird things where you're just waiting. The Giants are for real. And I guess, I mean, I could see the Red Sox. I think the Red Sox coming this season were like 20 to 1, had these terrible odds. And people are, now you look back on it, well, maybe the Red Sox just had a bad, Red Sox had a bad year last year. But no one saw this from the Giants, but they just keep winning. And they're still ahead. I mean, people thought this division was just me. I thought this division was just Padres and Dodgers. But look at the Giants just refuse to, to just give, the, give in. And now they're actually lengthening their lead, their lead a little this week. It, it's exciting stuff in the NL. West and it gives you something to do if you want to you know start watching baseball at 10 p.m. like I'm usually ready to go for let's go over to golf and I don't know the way that the PGA handled John Rahm testing positive for COVID is just terrible and he's vacating what probably was going to be a win his caddy is losing $175,000 I mean congratulate it ended up being a good tournament but it's not the way you want to see uh Cantlay and Morikawa go down to a, a playoff when someone got taken out who had a massive lead well, people might not know what happened because it, it, it just was like Saturday when everything was going on. But John Rahm had a six-stroke lead going a lead after the Saturday round in, at the Memorial, which is one of those big tournaments. It's Jack Nicklaus's tournament. Tiger has a Genesis. Jack has Memorial. Arnold Palmer when is it Arnold Palmer's tournament is Bay Hill uh, passed away, but still in honoring him in terms of those things. And this is Jack's tournament, and so it is. You see the field. It's one of the best fields on the tour besides all the, all the major events. Uh, but Rahm had a six-stroke lead, but he's walking off it, and they said, you, you failed the COVID test. And they actually had done two tests. I said, well, it's probably a mistake. But they actually done two tests, and then they pulled him out. And now there was issues. Could he have – should they have informed him in front of everybody else? Should they have also – should they have not let him play on Sunday by himself because he had no symptoms or whatever? He had a six-stroke lead in a tournament. And uh, this is now the third time that a player has been removed from a tournament after having tested positive. Watley on the RBC Heritage, McCarthy and Travelers, and Brandon Grace at Barracuda. But nothing to the extent of leading a tournament. And uh, it just – you know, it cost him – he had to be disqualified in the tournament. It cost him a chance to win $1.8 million. And he actually fell in the, in the world golf rankings second to third behind Justin Thomas. And now he has 10 days of isolation before the U.S. Open coming. Uh, Patty Harrington uh, talked to him about this. You know, Patty Harrington in 2000, uh, is, he's going to be the Ryder Cup captain. And so I was like, there was comments. We had Patty on our, on our, uh, our show two months ago during the Honda. And 2000, he had a five-stroke lead at the Benson Hedges, and he was about to tee off. And he found, this is a crazy story. He found he did not sign his scorecard, that when they, Michael Campbell signed his scorecard twice, and he had a five-stroke lead, and he disqualified him from the tournament, which is crazy. Um, and then until the next day, so he said, look, I've been through this, and I went on to win a major after that happened, so he gave him, you know, started to boost his spirits about, about everything. But it was just a crazy situation. And then it, the tournament on Sunday was great between Canelay and Morikawa, uh, went down to 17, and at one point, Canelay had a, had like a 15, made a 15-foot birdie to tie uh, Morikawa. They go into a playoff hole, on the 18, and uh, and they both Morikawa was in a better position after the tee, and uh, and but he ended up making you know they both hit bad shots, but they McKinley would go up and down and win the tournament by one stroke on the first playoff hole. It, it was um he just wasn't handled right. I mean, like you said, why not let this guy go out there play by himself in the morning, get it out of the way, <laughs> just let him go, make him wear a mask the entire time. I don't see why they did this, Ira, and it's uh, it's upsetting uh, for John Rahm, his caddy, all of his fans. I don't know if you saw this. Um, you know, <laughs> social media, I follow a lot of these golfers. Ricky Fowler was, was hanging out playing with Taylor Gooch, who we had on the show just about six weeks ago. So it's cool to see. I didn't know that they were friends, and they they, uh, they posted some uh, photos together from earlier in the week uh, before this started. Um, what else do we have in golf? Well, no, Reed finished at – Patrick Reed finished in fifth at, at eight under. But, boy, Ricky Fowler now, it's like – Finally, I mean, it's great for him. He finished 11th. I know 11th for 400, but for someone who was a missing cut after missing cuts, there's another good tournament from him. And we talked about Tyler Gooch. At, uh, how about Tyler Gooch, Bryce and DeChambeau, Rory and Jordan, and, and, and all finished uh, with one under par 18, at 18th. 
but uh, you know, one of those things. And then Jim Herman, who we had on our show, I love all that when we have people on our show, but Jim Herman was in the top 10 uh, through Sunday, and then he had, he had a shot of 76 on Sunday and finished in 26. But uh, there was no just Dustin Johnson in the field, no Brooks Captain in the field. They're actually playing this week at a South Carolina event that should have been the Canadian Open. They moved it for COVID, and then the U.S. Open is in, in two weeks. It was interesting that Bryson – Bryson didn't like the fact that people were, well, you're going to start to see this. I mean, Bryson is a very, he had got this muscle mass and this growth and this length of his, of his game and everything like that in terms of, and this was all during COVID and now fans are coming back. And as I told you before, I followed Bryson. He's not, he's abrasive with fans. Like he, he'll shoot, he'll talk back to them. And now the fans are here. And before, I don't think people knew a lot about Bryson, but now that he's sort of out, it's like one of those things where now fans are going to say things to him and now he doesn't like it. And he wants the tour to do something about Brooks because I guess they threw a bunch of fans out for saying things to him. And Brooks said, I'm going to buy them beer. And Bryson <laughs> said, the tour's got to do something about Brooks. I, but I, this isn't about Brooks Kefka. I think it's about Bryson. Bryson's going to have to learn how to play with the fans following him like they were. And I, this is going to be a problem in this game with these fans. Now that you're going to have normal galleries the rest of the, the golf tournament. And it, it, it'll be interesting to see how he handles it because it, before, before his, you know, and he made a lot of statements during the COVID. He was like, okay, I gained how many pounds, 60 pounds of muscle. I'm now hitting the ball 500 yards, all this other stuff. But there was no fans at these events. Now there's fans at the events and people are going to be for you, against you. We go to the, people say that all the time. And, 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 and guys like Tiger, they're used to it. Trust me, Tiger's been doing this his whole life. And these other golfers are used to it too. But Bryson's got to get used to it or, or he's going to have trouble. No, you're absolutely right. Some people are the heel. And they embrace it. Trey Young just happened in the Knicks series, and he didn't even ask for it. Bryson wants to be the bad guy, but doesn't want any blowback for it. And yet, just not how it's going to work, Ira. Um, I think the Olympics are, are pretty much uh, shaking up here. The Olympics are interesting. No one's talking about it, but the, the top four Americans get in. Justin Thomas is going to be in one of them. Dustin Johnson isn't going to be in it. But this is the Blue season three or like a month, month and a half. But it's going to be an interesting battle between uh, Bryson, Xander Shoffley, Colin Marcow, and Brooks Kepka and uh, Patrick Reed. All for those final spots. There's going to be those six golfers, really, for or actually four golfers, five golfers for the final uh, three spots in that. So I think it's sort of interesting in terms of this field because when you see the Olympics, uh, it's one of those where they take the top, I think, 64 golfers, the two from a country up to a certain level, and because the Americans dominated so many, it's like, there's a chance if you're a good golfer, <laughs> the field is going to be watered down. This is a chance to win. Uh, it's something that is not considered a major, but Justin Rose, it's only what happens once every four years, and it's, it would be a big win. Uh, so I think that, uh, besides Dustin, I, I think the golfers are all going to enter this. I think you're going to see uh, people, I mean, everyone's just talking about playing in it. So I, as we get closer to the Olympics, uh, I think the last week of July, first week of August, you're going to hear more about this. But the field gets set in two weeks at the end of the U.S. Open. So what's up next for golf? Um, uh, the the uh, Torrey Pines is in two weeks. Uh, for the U.S. Open. And then after that, Travelers, Rocket Mortgage, John Deere, and then the British Open. So you got a lot of events coming up, and, and you got two majors within a month. Uh, but we're excited. I mean, and this is where, this is what's going to happen in terms of what is Dustin Johnson. That's why he's playing this week. He and Brooks at the Palmetto Championships. They're trying to figure out, uh, you know, Dustin himself is trying to find his game. Brooks is trying to fine tune his game and getting ready for another good run at the major, uh, which will be the Torrey Pines U.S. Open. I run sports, True Oldies Channel. I'm Mike Balsamo. Ira, French Open is underway, and I'm sure you've been uh, putting a lot of time into watching it. I love the French Open. It's great. I mean, it's like one of those things in the morning that you get your work on, the television's going, the, the matches sometimes start at 6 o'clock, but it's a, it's a lot easier to watch the French Open in Wimbledon than it is by the Australian. I don't get any <laughs> of those 3 a.m. matches I have to watch. So what was going on here? Start with the women's bracket because this is a little weird. Well, Naomi Osaka is number two in the world. And she's 23 years old. She's won the U.S. Open twice in 2018. She over Serena, the controversy where Serena got was getting defaulted games near the end of the match, and she ended up losing. It was her first title. She also won the Australia, the uh, 2019 Australian Open, and then during the pandemic, she won the 220 uh, U.S. Open, 220 Australian. She's number two in the world, as I said. But she's never done well at the French. She's entered it five times, never passed the third round. And she's never done well at, well at Wimbledon. She's entered three times, never passed the third round. So she really does well on hard courts, which is the Australian Open, 
in the U.S. Open, but terrible at the French and terrible, not terrible, but certainly not at the level where she is. Um, she's one of the, because she was born in America, but she classifies herself, she's born in Japan, but lives in America, but classifies herself as a Japanese citizen. She earns, like Hideki Matsuyama, who's done, we, talk, we heard from the Masters, enormous amounts of money, and, and she's made uh, $55 million this past year in endorsements. She just signs with Tag Heuer, Louis Vuitton. Um, but she does. She she doesn't like being interviewed. So by by she is against these the interview policy. Even though as someone who watches more tennis interviews than, than I don't think anyone does because they sit and listen to them all the time, they have to be the most milk toast interviews you could ever imagine. It's like you played well, you played great. This is exciting. Your fans like I hear this all the time. That's what they talk about. So these are not hard hitting interviews. But she doesn't seem that she's a, she doesn't like the interviews. She met, mentioned about her mental health and that it bothers her. And she said, "I'm going to pay the fines." But it's 15000 every time she misses an interview. And we see this for the NBA all the time and all these other sports when people decide not to be interviewed and they have to pay a fine and there's a fine. This happens at every sport they require interviews. There's not one sport that doesn't. And sometimes they pay and not. But she said, I'm never going to do interviews. And they said, well, and she just charged the fines. But in the way this, the, it set up was, and they, the other sports had the same thing. I mean, they, when Kyrie made his comment too, they're like, no, we're going to fine you, but there's a progression. And then eventually we're going to suspend you if you don't do the interview. So the point is, well, why does she need, a lot of my friends are saying, why does she need the interviews? Well, because that's what they want. I mean, the sport, a lot of women like Billie Jean King and Chris Ebert, they, Billie Jean King especially, she's supporting Naomi, but she said, boy, we're getting, we're trying to get the game. We wanted people to talk to. The the media is what pushes our our event. This media talks about our event. And I know Naomi has social media, and it's not like she doesn't do interviews, because even at the French Open, when she said, I'm not doing interviews, she was interviewed by a service that pays her for the right to do interviews. So I guess the tour is saying we can't just have a situation where we don't have any media whatsoever. She really should do the interviews. And and she does bring a thing about her mental health. And and I am more than anything, I I, I 100%, you know, want her mentally. To, to, I understand about the mental health issues, and I think that one of the things for tennis and sports is we, we focus on the physical and not the mental, and some of the greatest athletes have because of their mental, their, their strength of their mental health. I mean, Serena made a comment where Serena goes, I support Naomi. I support her 100%, but I'm very strong. She's not as strong as I am. Now, they, the media didn't report that, but that's what Serena says. Serena's been, you know, win 23 titles and not be through tough times. I mean, we, I saw today Djokovic played a match against a young 19-year-old Italian. First set, 7-6, seven, 7-6, six, seven, six, Djokovic losing. Uh, he lost two down, two sets to none. He went back and won 6-0, 6-1, 4-0, and then the Italian gave up because he was able to hang in that. I've seen Djokovic Nadal play five-hour matches. I mean, that's the one thing about the mental strength, that we understand that it's important, and that's why these players are spending so much time with psychologists and sports psychologists to get themselves stronger in terms of thinking. So it's not saying that we're not concerned about her mental health, but it's one aspect of tennis, of one aspect of all sports. But, I mean, my point about Naomi is that if she doesn't want to do the interviews, I, I, then she shouldn't. You know, it, then they have every right not – they have every right to find her and say, look, you can't, we can't require the other players to do interviews and not have her do the interviews. And I was surprised that she then withdrew from the entire event. Now, the question is, will she play in Wimbledon either? And will she do, will she do interviews in the future? And how this is going to be handled, uh, those points. I know some players, it's, it's, it's mixed. I think people are trying to be supportive of her and understanding of her. But the other thing is, like, if you said, well, I'm, it, it, these players want to win. They're out against each other. Like, if you see someone limping on the other side, you're going to drop shot them. You're going to move them side to side. The doll's not going to say, oh, I see that your leg hurts. I'm going to hit the ball right to you. So as much as we're concerned about people's mental health, if you're out there in a competition, events, the other teams are people are going to – that's why they, people – you hear all the talking and everything in football and basketball, and everyone talks and says stuff. They're trying to get under people's skin. They're trying to, to make them make mistakes. So I think it's, it's, it's so much easier to say, oh, my gosh, we're so concerned about Naomi's mental health, which, which people should be. Yes, we're concerned. But if you're going to be in competition, then that's going to be an issue that's going to come up. And should she be required to do If they don't want to make people to do interviews, then really that's going to be a major thing in all these sports because every sport requires hockey. You see it during this period. Everyone requires interviews. So if you're not going to do the interviews, I mean, Tiger Woods, who did not want to do more interviews than Tiger Woods? And he actually did interviews. So everybody does the interviews. They know it's part of the game. That's why you're making multi-millions of dollars, and that's one part of it. And if she's exempted from it, then the other, then, then everybody could be exempted from it. Ira, we've got uh, just a few minutes left here on Iron Sports. What, what happened in the tournament? 
Well, Serena ended up losing in the fourth round. She hasn't won in four years. Um, she is 20, stuck at 23 titles. But the star of the women's tennis is Coco Golf. She made it to the quarters. Um, now she's in the quarters, and, and she's now set. I think this is 17 years old, and I really believe that coming forward, we're going to be talking about Coco Golf as winning multiple and multiple majors. Uh, just she's in perfect position. The, she's, the seeds, one through seven, have already lost. She has as good a chance as anybody to win this tournament, and at 17, that'd be great, whatever she does, but she's playing fantastic. So I'm real excited for Coco Golf in terms of, uh, in terms of going forward. And in the men's side, Federer, uh, he won three matches, and then he pulled out, which I, I love Federer, but again, that's the problem I have is when you're playing these tournaments and you win, you shouldn't pull out because then you're giving the advantage to the person you're supposed to play next because then he doesn't play. So then it's, a, it's like, he's supposed to play Berrettini next. Well, Berrettini was, uh, it was now just playing Djokovic. Djokovic had to play today. Berrettini got the day off. So it's not really fair to Djokovic that he got to play and Berrettini had a day off. Uh, the doll's been cruising, and what we talked about is that doll will have to play Djokovic probably in the semifinals if Djokovic gets behind, you know, behind past Garantini. And then the other side of the draw, you have the Tsitsipas versus Medvedev in the one quarter finals. And I really like Tsitsipas making it to the finals if he against Sasha Zarev. He'll beat Zarev, and then hopefully, I mean, hopefully for Tsitsipas, but Tsitsipas will then probably play Nadal in the finals. Um, in the American men, no Americans in the round of 16. Opelka lost uh, to Medvedev in the fourth round. Israel lost to Tsitsipas. But the American men, they've never, it's been years since they've made a run here at the French, and you like to see them do a little better. But uh, And then the other point is, they don't. They're using linesmen here, and the other tournaments now are going to Hawkeye with issues computers. And when they're using the linesmen, these their mistakes are amazing. How many mistakes? And they don't even use even Hawkeye. They just look at the spot on the clay, and there's been it just you can now after getting used to watching just the computers calling every line, and now you're having linesmen back. It does it does look ridiculous, and I, I would expect the French in a year or two to change and have uh, no linesmen. So, Ira, talking about the Belmont, if you're a better, this was not your day. The trifecta paid $20. The superfecta paid $60, as we saw a lot of chalk come in. Well, I think what happened is you only have – Belmont usually runs, you have seven horses. And the Belmont loses its luster when you're not going for a triple crown. And Essential Quality, who was fourth in the Derby, it was a six-to-five favorite in this one, uh, was able to – I mean, he had a bad run in the Derby, didn't run in the Preakness. Uh, Hot Rod Charlie had the lead. I was watching this. I was actually at the Nets game on my phone. I'm watching Hot Rod Charlie was, had the lead on the far turn. And Essential Quality ran with him a while and then passed him – to, uh, to win. Ron Bauer, the Preakness winner, finished third. Rod Charlie stayed at second place. Uh, and Baffert was, uh, Bob Baffert of uh, Medina Spirit, that was now been banned from the Belmont, banned from Churchill Downs, and uh, it looks like it in terms of they have not ruled, though, who's won the Kentucky Derby. Mandolin is still out there waiting because just because they have ruled that Medina Spirit has failed as not the winner, they could just rule no race. I mean, there's an issue of what they're going to do. Now, if you bet Mandolin, you're not going to win. The bets are all gone. But there is been no ruling on who actually has won the Kentucky Derby. Um, essential quality is owned. You know, talk about some of these rags to riches owners. Uh, it's owned by the ruler of the United Arab Emirates, one of the richest men in the world. <laughs> so it was, it was interesting about this. But, uh, but the fact is about horse racing this year is that Bob Baffert, uh, it's going to be surprising to find any tra- tracks that he'll be able to run on because if Churchill Downs and Belmont are banning him, then you expect that these other uh, race tracks will do the same thing. And you're probably not going to see Bob Baffert uh, train any horses for the next couple of years. Well, Bob Baffert is not going to be, they're saying, not banned in California because Cal- what he got busted for is not illegal in California. So they're saying <laughs> they're going to let him run at Santa Anita and Del Mar. So it's going to be really weird. And they're thinking that a lot of people are still going to use Bob Baffert and then just very strategically switch their trainer a week before the Kentucky Derby. So that adds another wrinkle to the fold. What is racing going to do to prevent that? So it's going to be interesting, Ira. And it, it, either way, it's messy for the sport and it's just not a good look. Uh, what about auto racing? Formula One was one of the most exciting races at the end. Uh, Matthew Verstappen, a Red Bull, was leading the race. couple laps to go. Lewis Hamilton was in third place and Sergio Perez was in second. And Verstappen is like cruising along to a victory and his tire just blew out. He crashed in going 200 miles an hour with luckily no injuries or whatever. And then they stopped the race with two laps to go because of debris on the track. And they were nervous that the tires are saying about the tires because the tire just blew. And on the restart, Hamilton was trying to pass Perez 
And here is the greatest driver maybe of all time, and he hit the wrong. There's a switch for a break, and even though he passed Perez and was going to take the lead, he hit the wrong button, and his brakes locked up. As anyone who knows their drive, sometimes you, your brakes lock up like whatever, like a 16-year-old learning how to drive his first time, and he ended up going straight and not being able to make the turn and finished in, and then went to the back of the field for the final two laps and finished in, in like 16th place. So it was his chance, the two top, uh, racers were knocked out of Formula One and Sergio Perez. Uh, the Red Bull team ended up winning in that. And then in uh, NASCAR, Kyle Larson, we talked about how there's been such uh, parody in NASCAR, but he ran in Charlotte, which is a road, which is a, a track, a you know, super track race, dominated last week. This week is a road course at Sonoma where they're twisting and turning uh, turns, and he led 58 and 92 laps and uh, won both, both uh, sprints. Uh, and it was now he's you know, dominated and, and now it's won three races. He's won two races in a row and three races of uh, this year, uh, looking like the superstar driver that everyone thought he was going to become. Uh, there was 15,000 fans there at Sonoma. Uh, Michael Jordan, his first race, he was, he was at Daytona, but in Skybox, his first race in the pit. So you saw pictures of him walking around and Kyle Shanahan of the uh, San Francisco 49ers. <laughs> he was there. He was the, the grand marshal in his first NASCAR race. And he said it was, Super exciting. So, but that was everyone was sort of asking, like, who's going to be your quarterback at the 49ers? But he was more talking about racing. So, Ira, if it wasn't a sign of what's going on in the world in 2021, we had uh, Floyd Mayweather fighting a YouTube star. <laughs> I just don't, I don't know what happens anymore. I forced myself to buy it, and it was really one of the worst things I've ever watched. I paid $50. The other matches on it were. Were on Chad Johnson, Cho, Chad, uh, wide receiver Chad Oko, Oko Cinco, uh, the uh, Fod got knocked out. Um, that was unwatchable. It was raining at the Hard Rock, so it was like they were trying to box and pouring down rain because there's no roof where the ring was. Mayweather came out. Now I saw him live in 2017 against McGregor. He didn't look like the the Conor McGregor. The Floyd's only 44. He's not 74. But um, he looked, I was surprised how well McGregor did against him. This, he came out, I didn't recognize him, first of all. He's 155 pounds, like 10 pounds over what he fought, but those 10 pounds look like maybe 30 or 40 pounds. And, and he fought Paul, who was 0 for 1, not really a boxer at all. He came in at 190. But Mayweather had a beard on, and, and I want to think, he, he looked so slow, I, I was shocked. If he, he could not beat um, a low-ranked fighter. I, I mean, he couldn't. They ask him, "Would you fight again?" I, there's no way. He is, he's lost all his skills. I, Tyson fought in his late, his late 50s, and he fought a few months ago, and he looked fast. Mayweather was slow. He only connected on like 40 percent of his of his punches. Landed 43. Paul landed. The fact that Paul even landed punches. Paul landed 28 punches against him. And Paul is not. Remember, this is not a boxer. This is just somebody who goes in there has not been trained as a boxer. Is 0 for uh, 0 for one in his boxing career just terrible and i hope for mayweather's sake i mean he he did not look good at all i i as someone who watched i think 20 of his fights i i couldn't believe it i, I just can't believe how slow he was he he couldn't get his punches off and he couldn't move from punches and he and as said he's only 44 years old what about ufc uh, this week is going to be a great fight. Israel Adesayo versus uh, the Tory. It's going to be a middleweight title, and also the light heavyweight title is going to come back. So there's going to be, I mean, the uh, flyweight title is going to there's going to be a flyweight and middleweight title for UFC 263 with fans. So it's going to be exciting for that. And Adesmayo, remember last he fought against Dan Blankovich for the light heavyweight, ended up losing, but he still he still retained his middleweight title. So it's going to be that's something to look forward on Saturday night, along with all the NBA basketball. Ira, what are you doing this week? So we got tonight, Nets versus uh, the Bucks. I'm excited for this game at the Barclays Center. Tomorrow, Sixers-Hawks. And uh, that's probably about it this week because the Yankees are not in town in New York. And uh, so, but, uh, but I hopefully we'll see what happens. Maybe next week I'll catch a game too. But definitely I'm excited about tonight and tomorrow night. We both at in Philadelphia and the Barclays. <laughs> We're out of time. Thanks so much to Coach Fran Dunfrey. He's, he's Ira. I'm Mike. Let's talk next Monday night. It's Ira on Sports.